so that we could get to the treasure. Amen. Amen. Well done, uh, Sharice. Yes. Um, it's just good to be in the presence of God this morning. Uh, praise and worship and you do an excellent job. It was also uh, Sarisha's birthday yesterday. Inside in the Sunday school, I'm sure she can hear me there. But... Oh, no. <laughs> Guys, I need my glasses. I need my glasses, please. Right? Forgot to pack them this morning. Uh, what's it now? Um, 30, 32? 33? Can I ask a lady's age? <laughs> 20 something, Grace? <laughs> oh, no, God is good. Uh, family, thank you so much for your giving. Um, your giving does not go unappreciated. Um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, some of you guys gave some stuff, some shoes, some clothing. Um, actually, like two weeks back, if I'm not mistaken, we heard about a family whose home burned down. And they lost everything, literally everything. Not insured, lost everything. Uh, they were struggling as it was and they lost everything in the fire and it just so happened that we had the exact shoe size and yeah. clothing it's always more blessed to give than to receive the highest form of blessing is to be a blessing amen and um, i think a few weeks ago um, Bradley and uh, Sue Ellen's uh, son, Matthew. Uh, every time I say the name Sue Ellen in my head, I think of, you know, uh, was it uh, my granny used to watch uh, Dallas, was it Dallas? Bobby, <laughs> <laughs> she forced me, drowned me in, the, in those shows. And just one TV, we didn't have options, so we were forced to watch all these soapies days of our lives, Dallas, Bobby, Ewing, and all these, these people. And um, anyway, Matthew, I was so moved. I said, let me, let me mention it. And it's, it's not to, you know, just put a feather in his cap, but sometimes you come to church and sometimes as a team, we come with the aim and agenda of ministering to you. That's our mindset. That's how our heads are geared. But when you get to church and a little act, or it might not seem little uh, to whoever's, you know, doing the gesture, um, you know, when Matthew uh, gave, he gave an offering of all his savings, little pennies, and um, the ladies and coins, and I don't know how much it was, but the, the ladies were out counting days. days. <laughs> <laughs> and it ministered to me. It ministered to me. Um, and uh, just thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, you're doing a great job with him. And uh, I promise you gave him a gift. Didn't 
Jesus uh, tell us about power of kids? What we can learn from children? Come on, man. That's why he said, bring them to church. Come on, man. Suffer little children to come unto me. Bring them to church. You have no idea how you are shaping their world just by bringing them to, to church and teaching them the word of God and teaching them how to pray and playing uh, gospel music. I'm telling you now, our kids are going to be singing on the way home, Ungi Zungi Zile. Amen. Um, I just hope you guys are not too exhausted from that rugby game last night. Um, so uh, would you turn on me to John chapter 5? I haven't, I haven't preached yet for what, like four or five weeks? Right? Almost six weeks, eh? Five weeks. I've been on, on leave. But I've been busy. I've been busy. I've been a traveling itinerant preacher for, for the shortest time. John chapter 5. Uh, our, our guys just did a great job, Glenville and uh, Pastor Clint. Yeah. Uh, holding down the, the fort. Yeah. Aren't they great preachers? Yeah. Come and show them some appreciation. Yeah. I didn't manage to get to charge my stopwatch, but I have a, another stopwatch called Sway Elliott. Um, so. She'll be holding me accountable for, for my time and our time this morning. Anything goes wrong, any breaks fail, you know who to blame. <laughs> Are we all at John chapter 5? If you're at John chapter 5, please give me another Amen. amen. And we're reading from verse 1. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? That's the title of our message this morning. Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, 
It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Never mind that this man's been in this paralyzed position for 38 years. Their concern was over the violation of their Sabbath rules. And he said to them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn um, a multitude being, and there was a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had, been, who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, saying, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought to kill him all the more, because not only did he break the Sabbath, but also he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Amen. There's nothing better that I can say than what we've just read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence, the presence of your Holy Spirit right now. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you, to come to, to a place of fellowship, call on your name. And right now, Lord, we've read of a paralyzed man who was made whole by your word and by your power. Right now, Lord, we think about those of our fellowship that is not well. We think of Uncle Desmond, yes. who has been admitted back to hospital. We pray, Lord, that you will send your word and heal him of his affliction. Heal his body in the mighty name of Jesus. For anyone else, Lord, who is sick, suffering with any kind of illness i pray right now lord that your word will heal them of their sickness and disease in jesus name and so lord we pray you anoint this time we have anoint our ears restrict all the distractions hold those bladders hold those bowels in as we focus this time on trying to hear your voice. Speak to us and build our faith in our hearts to believe you for the impossible and to hear your voice for the situation and challenges we find ourselves in. Teach us your ways in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen, amen and Amen. Just a quick review. And recap family you know the author of the gospel of john is john who was known as john the beloved the purpose of john just to remind you is found in his purpose statement which is in chapter 20 verses 30 to 31 where john writes and truly jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but 
these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He tells you the purpose for why he recorded his gospel. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life. John also repeats this purpose in his epistle. 1 John chapter 5. Same purpose for which he writes his epistle. He says, These things I've written to you, that you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so here we see that faith is necessary for the sinner to be saved, and faith is necessary for the believer to be discipled. And so faith is both a matter of evangelism and a matter of discipleship. So he's writing, writing with this intent and with this aim that those who don't know him, who are lost and need salvation, that they would believe that he is the Christ. And that by believing in Jesus, they might find life in his name. And he's writing to the church to encourage them uh, that you still need to believe. Yes. You, don't, you don't grow past believing in him. Yes. Faith is required from A to Z. Yeah. And it's important to understand this because we see believing in Jesus almost as an elementary truth. You know, like it's a, a, an evangelistic call alone. No, we are still required to believe and grow in our faith in Jesus. And so John can be outlined very simply. Um, uh, Granville mentioned this uh, in his previous uh, initial message um, that from chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 you have a prologue uh, where John speaks about the incarnated word of God who existed and pre-existed uh, with the Father and then from uh, chapter 1 verse 19 to chapter 12 verse 15 uh, uh, chapter 12 verses 50 you have uh, what scholars and, and Raymond Brown refers to as the book of signs so between these 11 chapters you have seven signs, seven miracles that John refers to as signs because miracles are signs. They point you somewhere. They point you to the glory of Christ. And then from chapter 13 to chapter 20, verses 31, you have what scholars refer to as the book of glory, where we see the final week of Jesus uh, leading up to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. And the return of Jesus to the Father means the glorification of Jesus. And then we have from chapter 21, verses 1 to 25, the epilogue, where John gives us an account of all the post-resurrectional uh, appearances of Christ. And so how we are going to look at our text in chapter 5 is that uh, uh, we're going to break it up uh, between verses 1 to 9 where Jesus heals the paralytic man, the lame man. And then we're going to look from verses 10 to 18 at the hostile reaction of the Pharisees to this miracle. Okay, And then what we see from verses 19 to 29 which we won't cover, you see uh, Jesus from this conflict and conversation with the Pharisees and, and the Jews 
um, how he makes several authoritative claims okay, about his relationship with the Father and about who he is. He speaks about how the Son can do nothing of himself and he only does what he sees the Father uh, doing. And he mentions that the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he does and will show him greater works that is to come. He also makes a third claim where he says the father raises the dead and gives life to men even so the son gives life to whom he wills makes another claim and says the father judges no one means that the judgment seat of, of, of Christ uh, and of God the, the son is going to be doing the judging not the father and so he says the father has given all judgment to the son and he goes on to make another three more claims. He says uh, that if you don't honor the Son, you haven't honored the Father. And he goes on to say that he, he, he who hears the words of the Son believes in the one who sent him and has everlasting life. And then he makes another last authoritative claim. He says the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live speaking of the resurrection of the dead. He makes these uh, several claims and it provokes the Jews to anger and wrath and gnashing of teeth. And, and then Jesus goes on to provide four proofs, four sample, uh, samples of evidence for this claim. And these claims, he goes on to say that John's witness is evidence to these claims because John testified of him who was to come and pointed Jesus out and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world he makes and gives us another sample of evidence he says uh, not only is John's witness evidence and proof of my claims secondly the works of, of the Father the works that he's given me to do these are proofs the miracles that you see in themselves a proof uh, that my claims are valid and authoritative and then Lord and said, uh, thirdly he mentions that uh, you know the father gave witness to him as well not just John but the father also spoke and said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and the father's witness alone was enough and lastly he says that you search the scriptures supposing that in them there's eternal life just by knowing the scriptures and quoting the scriptures and reciting the scriptures you think that that by knowing the scriptures in themselves they are eternal life no the scriptures are they that testify of me it says the scriptures bear witness of me john bears witness of me the miracles that i do that the father has given me bears witness of me uh, uh, the, the father gave witness of me and the scriptures give witness of me so he validates his claims in these four ways quickly we're going to look at our bible topic and have a case study as well before we get into our text and uh, our bible topic this morning is does god still heal today does god still heal today does god still perform miracles today what is the definition of a miracle a good definition um grudem stated and defined a miracle as a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder 
and bears witness to himself. Strobel defined a miracle as an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. So what is the purpose of miracles and signs and wonders? Calder states, firstly, that the purpose of miracles and healings is to reveal the glory of Christ. We see this in John chapter 2 verse 11 when Jesus performs the miracle of turning uh, the water into wine at, at Cana of Galilee. Um, John states that when Jesus uh, was in Cana and performed the first sign, he did this so that through this miracle he, he might reveal his glory and that his disciples might believe in who he was. Secondly, miracles authenticate the message. Miracles authenticate the message. We see this in Mark 16 verse 20. The Bible says that the disciples went forth, they preached everywhere, and the Lord was working with them, confirming the word with signs that follow. Okay? So, miracles often authenticate the message being preached. Miracles follow the message. Sometimes, and I say and I want you to note this, sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes, miracles authenticate the messenger. And the reason why I say sometimes is because at Judgment Day, there will be many who will say, but Lord, I've casted out devils in your name. I've healed the sick in your name. But he'll turn to them and say, I knew you not. You work of iniquity. Okay. So it's possible to be performing signs, wonders, and miracles and be a stranger to God and the work of iniquity. And so that's why I emphasize uh, the sometimes. Okay? Because we have to give consideration to false teachers and prophets who may perform signs and wonders. We see this in Egypt. When, when Moses threw his serpent, he stick down. And the magicians were able to throw their sticks down that turned into a snake. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you with all patience in signs and wonders and in mighty deeds. And so he's um, arguing and speaking for his authority as an apostle. And he says, these these." Uh, things substantiate my claim. Signs and wonders and miracles, the signs of an apostle were amongst you. Okay, we see this also in Acts chapter 2, where the Bible speaks of, of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by signs, wonders, and miracles that God did through him. Okay. Fourthly, the purpose of miracles is to build faith. It's to build faith. Jesus performed many other signs, but these were written to you that you may believe that he is the Messiah. Kina, however, um, presents us with a challenge we have around, around miracles. Okay? And, and this is perhaps one of the greatest challenges we have as believers around the idea and experience of miracles and signs and wonders is that it's possible to believe in miracles in principle. 
and go through our lives not expecting them. We easily fall into that trap as believers. Another great misconception around miracles is that people often want God to perform miracles to prove himself to them. If only God will do a miracle, a sign or wonder, then I will believe. This proposition and idea, however, is not often the case in Scripture. Because Scriptures testify to the fact that whenever God performed amazing, powerful demonstration of miracles, the Israelites still chose to disobey Him. In fact, we see this uh, in the Gospels. Jesus came with many signs and wonders, but the majority of the world did not receive him or believe in him, even his own brothers. Luke 16 tells us of a story of a man, a rich man, and a poor man who went to, to heaven and hell. And then the man who's in hell says, to the, the man in Abraham's bosom in heaven in paradise he says maybe maybe you should send Lazarus back from the dead to go and warn the people of this place and what does the man in heaven say he says if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead If God performed miracles today, as He did in the past, the results will be the same. Don't stop an unbelieving heart. Reasons why I believe in miracles, that miracles still happen today. Firstly, the Bible never informs us that miracles will cease. Secondly, miracles still happen because God has not changed. And His character has not changed. Miracles still happen because I believe there is still power in the name of Jesus. Miracles still happen because I believe God still answers prayers. Miracles still happen because I believe the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are still in operation. Miracles still happen because the devil still happens. Miracles still happen because I have personally seen and experienced Him. Amen. Amen. Who's believing God for a miracle? Amen. Miracles still happen. Our case study very quickly uh, is on Bible translations and original manuscripts. Now some of you, when you were reading through John chapter 5, you notice if you have a modern translation that we were reading on different lines. Uh, shake your head if you, if you agree. There was something missing, wasn't there? <laughs> okay. There are three types of translations. Okay. There's what you call a literal translation. There's a dynamic equivalent. And there's a paraphrase. Okay. Three types of translations. A literal translation is referred to as a word-for-word -word translation. The goal of this type of translation is to stay as close as possible to the original language that the Bible was written in. Yeah. Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, and pieces of Aramaic scattered across uh, both Testaments. 
where it is possible a literal translation tries to provide a single English word for a Hebrew term or Greek term. And that is very difficult to do because words have different meanings across the ages and cultures. Examples we have of a literal translation is your King James Version, your New American Standard NASB translation, and the New King James, uh, sorry, the, the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is an example of a literal translation. Then we have what's called a dynamic equivalent translation, also referred to as a thought for thought translation. In other words, the translators try to give you the thought behind the words, not just the word-for-word -word translation. The goal of this type of translation is to find the precise equivalence of words, idioms and grammatical constructions from the original languages. It attempts to keep the historical factual matters intact and in place, while it updates the language uh, and grammar and literary structure of the sentencing and it makes it a little bit more easier for us to understand okay so with a dynamic equivalent translation there's more room allowed for the translator to try and communicate the idea behind what's being said or what's being been, been written. An example of a dynamic equivalent translation is the NIV translation, the New Living Translation and the Rev New Revised Standard Version. And then lastly the third type of translation we have is called a paraphrase translation, also known as a free translation. The goal of the type of translation is to communicate the ideas of a language from one culture to another, trying to keep uh, the meaning intact, but bending the exact structure of, of the language that has been uh, recorded. And so these translations seem to be the easiest to read and to understand, but it has a big downside. Okay. The big downside is that there's a greater historical distance between what's been recorded and what's been translated. And there's more room for the translator to impose his opinions uh, in the text. And so there's a greater drift from the original author's intent, which makes these translations uh, very dangerous, I, I would say. So examples of this is the Living Bible the Message Bible, the Phillips version, the Passion uh, Translation. Okay, I don't uh, particularly recommend these translations, paraphrase translations, uh, as a main source translation for you to read. Okay, if you're trying to stimulate imagination, or you or you just want want to get a different idea about what's being communicated, always read a paraphrase um, along with a literal or dynamic equivalent translation. So which translation to, to use, Mr. Preacher Man? Yeah. My opinion is read more than one translation, yeah. more than one type of translation. If you're serious about Bible reading, avoid paraphrases. <coughs> Uh, the most praised 
literal translation there is is the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Okay. Then second that follows is the English Standard Version, the ESV, and then the New King James Version. So have a literal translation and then have a dy dynamic equivalent. Okay. For dynamic equivalence, the NIV and NLT are highly recommended. Amen. Amen. You still with me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not getting dry yet. Okay, so where, where, do, where do our translations, our English Bibles originate from? They originate from two major uh, source manuscripts. Okay. Uh, two kinds of what they call um, manuscript families. The one line of of uh, manuscripts is called or known as the Byzantine line of origin. Okay, sometimes referred to as the text, uh, the Textus Receptus. Okay, in Latin, um, some have uh, speculated that uh, these manuscripts originated in Antioch in Syria, okay, uh, where the church headquarters were based in Acts. The second line of manuscripts um, is referred to as the Alexandria text, okay, uh, which is also known as the Codex uh, Sinaiticus or and the Codex uh, Vitanicus. Okay, so uh, just stretch out your hands for me this morning. And so we have our translations, every translation, over 60 Bible translations that either come from the Byzantine <coughs> manuscripts or from the Alexandria manuscripts. Okay, there is a debate around which manuscripts are the most preferred and most reliable. That debate will not cease until Jesus comes, unless there are new discoveries of, of more ancient texts. Okay, so most of our English modern translations are from the Alexandria manuscripts. Okay. Uh, why translators have referred, uh, preferred the Alexandrian manuscripts is because they are the most earlier dated manuscripts. They date closer to the time when the Gospels were written. And why some prefer the Byzantine manuscripts is because even though they're three to four hundred years later, they are the most widespread of the translations and they have no discrepancies between them as widespread as they are. Okay. And so you will find 5,210 uh, copies of the Byzantine manuscripts and you'll find under 200 uh, copies of the Alexandria manuscripts. Okay. And uh, the reason why people prefer the King James only the New King James is because they are the most widespread manuscripts uh, and uh, that they translated from and uh, the reason why translators and people prefer your more modern translations is because they are more earlier dated and they argue that if it's closer to the time then it must be more reliable now there are a few differences between the manuscripts but nothing that alters the message of the gospel. And we're going to stumble upon a difference. And I want you as an, a, a quick, uh, a quick uh, exercise, when we get there, 
to tell me which manuscripts we are reading. Is that fine? Okay. <laughs> are you still with me? Amen, amen. Okay. Are you at John chapter 5? Let's look at the healing of the paralytic man. Okay, so from verse 1 to 2, Bible says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now what we've learned from our Bible reading and our, and our ministry over, over these last few months is that we pay attention to every detail of Scripture. So verse 1 gives us a historical note which sets the tone for the entire narrative. And it's one of the most... Uh, important themes that we see in the life of Christ that John is hinting at here that we don't see on the surface so when we read about Christ going up to Jerusalem uh, during a time of the feast of the Jews if you understand how John structures his gospel you will know that there is no insignificant detail of scripture no insignificant detail in in every phrase and in every sentence he is putting out there now what we see with john's gospel that greenville made mention of in his in his first sermon and message is that john repeatedly ties the storyline to the feasts of the jews and to the festival so we see in chapter 2 verse 13 when jesus is about to clean out the temple we, we see that John makes reference to that being the time of the Jewish Passover. We see uh, in, in chapter 5, he makes reference to a feast here. We see in chapter 6, he makes reference to, uh, to uh, the Passover festival when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. We see in chapter 7, uh, when Jesus has been accused of being demon-possessed, that this was the time during the Feast of the Tabernacles. So John is constantly tying us to the feasts of Israel and he's doing this very intentionally. But what's strange here in verse 1 is that uh, he does not precisely reference which feast this is. He just says Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during the time of the feast of the Jews. Now this is strange because every other time he precisely referenced what, what feast it was. And so this has caused a debate among scholars and commentators as to what feast John was referring to. But if you read in verse 9, verse B, or 9B uh, of chapter 5, you will see that he makes reference to this being the feast of the Sabbath. The feast of the Sabbath. Now, Gary Birch identifies that verse 1 is... A, a Sabbath festival and he argues that uh, the best way to outline the Gospel of John is to outline John according to the festivals and the feasts of the Jews. He says this makes the Gospel of John more clear. And so from chapter 5 we have the Sabbath festival. In chapter 6 we have the Passover festival. In chapter 7 to 8 we have the, the festival of tabernacles. And in 9, we have um, a case study of a blind man and, uh, and light. And then in chapter 10, we have the Hanukkah festival. Okay, so some scholars argue that chapter 5 is a bit of a troubling chapter because it seems that uh, this chapter in the sequence of events and in the flow of the narrative doesn't fit in chronologically. In other words, 
when you read chapter 4, Jesus is in Galilee. When you get to chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem. When you get to chapter 6, we told that Jesus is in Galilee again. And the distance between Galilee and Jerusalem is 130, uh, 158 kilometers. So for him to be in Galilee, then in Jerusalem, then back in Galilee, means that he traveled on foot. And it took roughly between 25 and 30 hours to travel 158 kilometers between Galilee and Jerusalem. And most times it was an overnight stay. So when we look at this passage and this chapter, it doesn't fit in sequentially with the flow of the narrative. And so scholars have been arguing, why would John place chapter 5 here? Why not place chapter 6 here? Because in chapter 6, he is in Galilee, and then we could group all his ministry activities in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 together, and in his ministry activities in chapter 5 and 7 and onwards in Jerusalem. It just makes better sense. But if you understand how John writes, you understand that he's being very intentional about the sequence of events and the structure of the gospel. In other words, he's not concerned about the chronological order of events. He's more concerned with the message and theme he wants to bring across. And the reason why he places chapter 5 here is because he wants to highlight the conflict that sparked the persecution of Jesus in the Gospels. So what we see in chapter 5 with this uh, lame man being healed and what we see uh, with, with him being, uh, being healed of his infirmity uh, at the pool of Bethesda, we, we, we see this as the trigger point for all the hostility and persecution that Jesus would face leading up to his crucifixion and from this point when this lame man is healed we have the conflict that emerges and surfaces this is where it began this is what marks and distinguishes the time when the persecution of the Jews occurred for Jesus all this hostility and conflict and persecution you begin to pick up as you're going along along in the Gospel of John so you find a trigger in chapter 5 and it gradually begins to build by the time we get to chapter 8 and chapter 12 and 13 we see that Jesus is now re relentlessly facing persecution from the Jews He's been constantly barraged time after time by the Jews. The conflict was so constant. You saw plotting and plotting and accusation after accusation and attack after attack. There was literally no room for Jesus to move without encountering some kind of conflict 
And all this conflict uh, serves to underscore is the immovable commitment of Christ to the will of the Father. All this conflict and hostility towards Jesus only highlights his faithfulness to the mission. All this conflict and, and persecution that Christ had to undergo only highlights his unwavering love for humanity. He was an impregnable fortress. He endured attack after attack, lies and accusations and gossip and backbiting and times of loneliness times of be betrayal uh, moments of abandonment confrontation at every turn and he was still able to keep his mind he was still able to keep his mental fortitude he was still able to hold on to his integrity he was still able to keep every commandment of the father he did not waver, he did not vacillate, he was not shilly-shally, he remained committed in his devotion to the Father. Imagine for a moment if he did lose his strength of mind. Imagine for a moment if he did give in to the pressure and claimed anxiety or slipped into depression. Can you imagine if every one of us faced a percentage of the conflict that he faced? Man, I had time out after the first persecution. You know, when we usually face an accusation or a hint of a rumor, we're ready to slip into depression. Yeah. We start talking about anxiety. My anxiety. <laughs> yeah. My mental health. Whenever we face conflict of any kind, we're prone to forget the God we serve. We're prone to forget the church we serve at. We're prone to forget to pray. We're prone to forget how to walk faithfully before God. That's our excuse now to go sit at... Uh, the pub down the road and throw back those Heineken's. The moment an usher or a pastor's wife or the sneaking deacon doesn't greet us at the door, we're ready to start finding fault. Can you imagine what it's like holding your commitment to God in spite of all the challenges you face. Yeah. Everything that Jesus faced highlighted his commitment to God. He stood four square in his mission to save the world. And here's another truth. Jesus faced all of this conflict and hostility. All of this persecution, even up to the point where they crucified him, he faced all of these troubled waters. And yet he was in the right place, at the right time, and in God's perfect will. Imagine that. Being in the right place, uh, at the right time, 
being in God's perfect world and people still gossip about you. People still betray you and persecute you. It throws a different kind of, of understanding on, on the will of God for your life. You know, you're at your workplace and everything's going fine. And all of a sudden people are gossiping about you. And that's your sign now. This place is not the will of God for me. That's how we think. But here Jesus is in the perfect will of God, doing what God wants him to do and facing hell on earth. You, you could be at the place you are in life and going through the most and God wants you to be there and not leave. You can be doing what God called you to be doing and still be going through a financial crisis. Where did we get the idea that we're not in the will of God when we face a difficult time? Let the mind that was in Christ be in us also. So we have in verse 2, uh, which tells us that Jesus approached the pool of Bethesda at the Sheep Gates, which had five po- uh, porches. Now, many skeptics and archaeologists uh, did not assume or think that this pool actually existed. They've searched for over 100 years and could not find what was called uh, the Pool of Bethesda. And it wasn't until 1956 that a German archaeologist who had lived in Jerusalem actually discovered and excavated the pool of Bethesda. Just as John had described, five porches at the Sheep Gates. The pool was at, on the north side of the Temple Mount, and there are countless of archaeological discoveries from the home of Abraham in the Earth Chaldeans, right to the Siloam Pool, excavated by uh, Leonard Woolley, Uh, You know, the list of discoveries is endless. And all these findings only serve to reestablish and confirm the veracity of Scripture. That Scripture is accurate and that Scripture is authoritative. It was Professor Klug that stated, I have excavated for 30 years with the Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. And in matters of historical perspective, I have never found the Bible to be in error. And so we get to verse 3 and 4. The Bible says, In these, uh, uh, you know, it, at this pool lay a great multitude of sick people, lame, blind, and paralyzed, uh, waiting for the stirring of the waters for an angel who would come down uh, at a certain time to trouble the waters. And whoever stepped into uh, the, uh, the pool first would be healed uh, and and." Uh, whatever disease they had. Now I want to ask you the question. Here's your, your question and your test. Which manuscript am I reading from? I'm reading the New King James translation. Alexandria, no. <laughs> I'm reading from the Byzantine text. Okay. Um, the Alexandrian text omits some of these details. Okay, there's less 
list descriptions. Okay, so if you have an ESV translation, okay, if you have an NLT Bible, um, they do not make reference to verse four and the second part of of verse three, because in the Alexandrian manuscripts they were not recorded. Okay. And that is the earliest manuscripts okay, uh, that don't describe an angel coming down. Okay. So what they speculate is that the, the second part of verse 3 and verse 4 in the Alexandrian text, uh, or should I say in the Byzantine text, was added there by a translator or scribe to give an explanation in a side column, mm. to give an explanation of why these sick people would gather. At the, at, at the pool of, of Bethesda. Uh, but there is a debate as to whether uh, this actually occurred because they speculate that there was a spring that was under this pool that would cause a bubbling, you know, and a troubling of the waters. And so the, uh, the scribe might just be highlighting for us what people believed at the time. Okay? But it is difficult to come to a conclusion and it's difficult to accept that, uh, that this might not have been the case when angel came down. So there's no way of us coming to a point of conclusion and saying, hey, this actually happened or did it. And right now some of you are thinking about your favorite Corky, Spring and Depart from Bethesda. You know, it, you might be singing a song so confidently there. It may not have been including the original manuscripts. <laughs> that point just served me saying that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. But it's important to know this uh, because there are some variations between source manuscripts, the Byzantine text and the Alexandrian text. And uh, the King James only camp look upon the Alexandrian camp like they have an agenda to change the word of God. But that's not the case. The case is that there are two manuscripts and there are some differences between them. Um, but these differences don't change the message of the gospel. Okay, so from verses 5 to 6, if you still have your Bibles, it tells us that a certain man was at the pool and he had this infirmity for 38 years and Jesus saw him lying there and Jesus knew already that he was in this condition for a very very long time now what's interesting to note here uh, is that Jesus healed many people he healed multitudes often in one sitting in Matthew 15 he heals all the sick the blind and the lame and the mute and the demon possessed that come to him. In Luke chapter 4, where after he heals Peter's mother-in-law, the uh, uh, Bible says, from sunset to sunrise, he prays for all the sick and heals them. But here we get to verses 5 to 6 of chapter 5, and this is not the case. It seems that Jesus is not interested in healing all these sick people around the pool. And the text doesn't seem to explain why Jesus singled out one man 
among all these people who are sick. John doesn't even try to discredit those who are sick around the pool as to why Jesus didn't heal them. Jesus heals one desperate, helpless, lame man who was in that condition for 38 years longer than Jesus was alive on earth. He chooses to heal one man out of the many sick. Why? Carson states that in this account that the sovereign initiative is with Jesus. And no reason needs to be given for his choice. What is meant by sovereign initiative? It means that at the bottom of everything that God does, he is God and we are man. Means that he possesses full authority and power to do what pleases him. He cannot be brought into any kind of scrutiny or judgment for any of his actions because there is no truth or law or judge above him. He is the highest truth. And Paul adds light on this in Romans chapter 9 when he says, uh, Is there any injustice to God that he saves some and not others? Paul says, Uh, He said to Moses, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I want to show compassion to. A.W. Pink states that God is sovereign in the exercise of his power. His power is exercised as he wills, when he wills, and where he Worlds. Pink further states that God is even sovereign in the exercise of his mercy. He shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And it's not a right to which any man is entitled to. None of us are entitled to his mercy. None of us. And this presents us with a theological point of tension because this would seem that there is an injustice on God's part. Why does he choose one and not choose the other? But one fundamental truth we've neglected over a long period of time is understanding this. Firstly, not, none of us deserve God's mercy. We've all born sinners into this world and we all sin freely by our free will and we are deserving of shame and death. Secondly, God is free to choose who he will show mercy to. Thirdly, God's mercy does not depend on our human will or actions. It depends completely on him. And fourthly, it's difficult for us to accept that God is sovereign. Because we've never been comfortable with the idea of God being God. We love to humanize God. We have a habit of judging him by human standards. You can't question God the way you question your husband or your wife. And what we see in this miracle is what we seldom see in the healings of Jesus. We see that, that Jesus comes to this man, heals him amongst many, 
And this man is not credited for having any faith. Nothing said about this man's faith. Every other miracle we've seen in the Gospels is where, where it was initiated by people's faith. Or, or Jesus would turn to them and say, your faith has made you well. But yet when we look at the story, there's no credit given to this man for his faith. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't seem to have known who Jesus was. There's no merit that we can, that this man can lay claim to for his miracle. Jesus just walks up to him, heals him, and it was all Jesus. And when the Pharisees are seeking out Jesus, we see this man doesn't even hesitate to point him out and say, hey, there's the man. There's he. He's more interested in his own well-being. It seems to me that this man is, is most undeserving. There's no one more unworthy of a miracle, in my opinion, in all of Scripture, than this paralyzed man. Yet Jesus still heals him. Jesus still shows compassion on him. This is how the gospel plays out. This is exactly how the gospel plays out. We are hopeless people without him. Hopeless, undeserving, similar to this man. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nobody that can come and save us and help us. But he chooses us anyway. Calls us anyway. Saves us anyway. Heals us anyway. In his love and his mercy, he chooses us among many. This is the message of the gospel. There's nothing that we can create to ourselves and say it was my faith. Does my intelligence, does my morals, my behavior, my decisions. No. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And the scripture says that while we were sinners, dead in our trespasses, God saved us, chose us, and redeemed us by His Son. What a blessing. Because there were many wiser than you. There were many more intelligent than you. Many more astute than you. Many more smarter and wealthier. And, and there were people more upstanding than you. But he chose you anyway. Peter, people better looking than you. But he chose you anyway. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the earth to be in His Son. Salvation is a sovereign initiative and intervention of God where none of us can boast. We are saved by God's grace through faith. So Jesus comes to this man and he asks him a question. Do you want to be made well? Seems like a strange question to ask a man who's been sick and lame for 38 years. <laughs> Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? This seems like a no-brainer. This seems like a foolish question to ask Jesus. Of course he wants to be made well. You don't need to ask the man, but why ask him? 
Because it's important for this man to answer the question at least for himself. Yeah. It's important. It's an important question because there are many who are ill. Many who are dead in their sins. Many who are helpless. Many who are sick. And diseased, I'm speaking uh, figuratively here. Yeah. That don't want to come out of the estate of helplessness. Sometimes people want help on their own terms. Sometimes people don't want help because they won't get the attention they used to. Sometimes people don't want help because they've grown to love the condition they're in. Sometimes people don't want to be helped because they enjoy the support they get from the state of, of condition they're in. Sometimes people don't want help because they don't want the responsibility that comes with being helped. There's nothing more heartbreaking from my own experience than trying to help someone who does not want to be helped. You will burn all your energy for it. In 1993, it was reported that there was a small order of Franciscan nuns in a place called Prague. And they decided that they're going to, you know, renovate and subsidize their convent by opening up uh, a, a downstairs to their facilities. And at the bottom of, of these facilities was a former prison cell. So they opened it up and they made it into a, 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 a hotel. It was a formerly... Uh, it's formerly known as an as a underground, underground detention center, you know, that was used by communists to imprison and torture their enemies. And so they opened this place up as a hotel. For $33 a night, you would come and stay in a former prison cell. And so the proprietor said that uh, the reason for this initiative is to try and achieve a middle ground between comfort and the authenticity in the, in the hotel. And many people are looking for just that today. They're looking for a comfortable prison cell. They are looking for a comfortable prison cell. And so Jesus asked him the question, do you really want to be healed? Hendrickson stated that in all probability these words were spoken and this question was posed for three reasons. Firstly, to bring this man to an open acknowledgement about how deep his misery is and about how he is unable and unable to deliver himself from his condition. Secondly, that his confession might cause the miracle to stand out in bolder relief. And thirdly, Hendrickson further states that inherent in this question that Jesus poses to the man is the promise of help. And so in verse 8 and 9, Jesus says to the man, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately this man was made well. He took up his bed, and, and he walked. And Jesus heals this man by the power of his spoken word. This man who was in this condition 
38 years long God's word healed him. And Carson states that when Jesus spoke these words, rise up, it anticipated the thundering voice of the Son of God on the last day that's described in verses 25, 28, and 29 when Jesus was, was speaking with the Pharisees when he said, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will love to not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God. And they will rise up to the resurrection of life or they will rise up to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus instructs this man, pick up your mat and walk. And this mat was usually made of straw. It was, a, it was light enough to be rolled up and easily carried on his shoulder. And Barrett states that just as the 38 years proved the gravity of this man's sickness and disease, so the carrying of the bed and the walking would prove the completeness of the cure. This man was healed by the voice of the Son of God and the word of the Son of God. And his word still heals today. Amen. And in verse 9, uh, second part, verse B, John makes reference to the fact that this was the Sabbath. Very, very important reference. John briefly mentions that the healing took place on the Sabbath in this verse. And he begins to elaborate further in the chapter and in the gospel. The importance of, of, of what would take place on the Sabbath and that Jesus is the Lord over the Sabbath. So this miracle would set the stage for the confrontation that would follow Christ throughout his ministry and what we see in chapter 5 6 and 7 is we see a shift in how people responded to Jesus they were reserved initially uh, they were they were but hesitant about who Jesus was but from this time and this miracle people became official and outright about how they they treated Jesus Further reading into this discussion and, and discourse that Jesus has with the Jews, you soon, realize, you soon realize the big idea behind this miracle is not just the healing of this man, but the controversy that would arise over who Jesus is. And there are two points of controversy. I've now reached the middle of my notes. But I've got a note here that says, possible ending if time doesn't end. So I'm, I'm, I'm on track. Okay. And I'm going to end here. I'm going to end here. I'll conclude next week. I'm such a good uh, preacher, eh? Make backup plans. There were two points of controversy about who Jesus is and, and, and why they persecuted him. Number one, he contravened their laws of the Sabbath. Okay. Secondly, his relationship with the Father and his claims of being the son of God is what was a point of controversy. So they viewed Jesus as a heretic and as a blasphemer. And these two points of controversy became the points of tension throughout his ministry. And the reason why there was a point of tension over the Sabbath wasn't because Jesus was violating the Sabbath, well, no. Uh, the Jews had 39 extra major laws around the Sabbath. You couldn't carry anything. You couldn't put, light a candle. You 
you couldn't look in the mirror. There were all these traditions and rules of men and religious leaders that put a burden on people that God didn't intend to put on them. They added to God's word and they took away from God's word. And when you add and subtract from the scriptures, you are not left with the gospel anymore. You are not left with God's word anymore. You are left with the word of man. And the word of man cannot save. And the word of man cannot set you free. And so it's also important that when we read the scriptures, we don't read into the scriptures. We read out of the scriptures. We don't impose our opinions and our presuppositions on the Bible. We look and we search for the intended meaning of the Bible. There are some people still preaching today that a woman's head must be covered. There are people still preaching today that I can't listen to a preacher if he, if he doesn't have a coat and a woman must cover all the sleeve lengths and not show any skin and cover ankles. There are people still preaching this, adding to the word of God and restricting people on coming to God. And that's why there was a point of tension and it still exists today between the gospel and the traditions of men. Can we stand? Amen. Before oh, yeah. I preach another sermon, let's stand. <laughs> Eyes closed, let's pray.